This morning we have a special treat for you for our scripture reading. Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 13. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it, and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness, it is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel and my glory. This is the word of the Lord. That was fantastic. Thank you, kids, for helping us out with that reading uh, today. Just good to see uh, some of the faces we've been missing over the last four weeks. So I want to remind you, before we jump into our message today, that uh, we are going to be taking the Lord's Supper at the end of this message uh, and so I'll lead us into that today. So if you haven't already, uh, I encourage you to grab some of the, some elements. It could be juice, cracker, bread, water, whatever you have. You can even slip away now and get it, and I won't know. So go ahead and do that. <laughs> go ahead and do that and have that ready. So but when we come back at the end, you're all set to go. Well, I'm glad to be back with you today for part two of our Comfort for the Quarantine series. Last week, you know, we looked uh, for comfort through various passages, and we pulled out three big themes of God's grace, his presence, and his sovereignty or providence, you might call it. Well, today we revisit his sovereignty. You know, we won't be able to say everything about the topic. We couldn't last week. We just brushed over it. But even today, with a full sermon on it, we won't be able to say everything about this topic. But I believe it is where we must turn when trials come. And yet God doesn't intend to give us every answer to all our why questions about his sovereign will. You know, we can't know, fully know, the mind of God or why he does many of the things he does or allows many of the things he allows. Deuteronomy makes that clear. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. You know, theologians call these two aspects of God his revealed will, that which he lets us know about himself, his character and the world and the law and the gospel through which he uh, has given us, his revealed will. But he also keeps things hidden in his will that we would call his hidden will, or some people call it his decreed will, what he has ordained to happen from all eternity. So his, hidden, his revealed will and his hidden will. As Job describes God's will, he says this in Job 42. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. All things he can accomplish in his will, his desire, his purpose, uh, and none of it can be thwarted. Or Ephesians uh, 1.11 says this, This is God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. It's the second aspect of God's will, his hidden will, his sovereign ordaining, 
his, his providence that we will talk about this morning. You know, this week I came across an article in The Telegraph. It's, it's one of London's biggest newspapers. It was a fascinating article. With the, here was the title. By a man named Philip Johnston. The title was this, At times like this, we realize just how powerless mankind really is. In the article, Philip Johnston talks about our predilection, our, our, our desire, uh, our love of apocalyptic films, like Contagion was one that came out, I think, 10, 12 years ago, maybe. The film's actually seen a resurgence on Netflix during this time. I, I, I think, why would you wa- want to watch that right now? But people are. <laughs> it's a film where disease takes over the world and the heroes come and save the day with a vaccine. And he goes on his article to talk about the fact that as comfortable Westerners, he says, we like to watch such films as a response to our long season of stability and prosperity that we've never even dreamed would be at jeopardy. And yet, for past generations, until the 20th century, really till midway through the 20th century, a life of sudden death, possible financial ruin or, or pillaging, was a daily reality. He says of us in that article as he went on in our complacency, we've come to rely on science for redemption. In past times with no health system, this virus would have been allowed to run its course, and given an apparent mortality rate of between 1 and 2%, it would by no means be among the worst pestilences to be visited on humanity down from the ages. After telling the story in his article of scientist John Snow who tracked the 19th century London outbreak of cholera to a water pump using science to combat the virus, as we should do, he went on to describe Samuel Pepys, who wrote in his 1665 diary during the plague, God defend us. But then he closes with this revealing insight, pointing at the facade of believing we're all-powerful. Look at his words. How many times have we heard people say, everything will be okay because scientists will work something out? Whether it be global warming or the pandemic, we're about to find out whether such optimism is justified. If it isn't, then I might be heading back to church. When all our human ingenuity and resources are exhausted, Where does humanity turn? Many times, like Philip in this article, it's to God. There's something painfully honest and revealing about his admission, where he says in a summary, I rely on me, on humanity, on our ingenuity. What will I do if that fails? I guess I'll go to God. I guess I'll go back to church. If we can't control it, maybe he can. In times of trial and uncertainty, one of the greatest comforts available to the Christian is the fact of knowing that God is sovereign over all things and that he's good. Jerry Bridges describes God's sovereignty or in other words, as providence like this. God's providence is his constant care, constant care for and his absolute rule over all his creation for his own glory and what's important and the good of his people. They're connected. It's in moments of suffering, whether global or personal, that we need to be reminded that God is on his throne and he's still in control. And this truth for us as believers is the doorway from hopelessness to hope. For you this morning, for me this morning, 
those that are just tuning in maybe for the first time this morning, that's our doorway to hope. And so today, we're going to head back to church by looking at four implications of God's sovereignty. You know, as this article has helped us begin, let's continue by first unpacking our current context a bit more. As Philip has helped us do that, let's, let's do it a bit more here this morning. Here's our context. Hopefully you got your notes and had them printed out and got your Bible open as well. Our context is this. Suffering reveals our lack of control first, but it also highlights the mystery of God's rule in our life. Think of a time for a moment. I want you to imagine in your mind. I want you to think of a time when you felt that things were out of control. Maybe it was the loss of a job. Maybe it was the loss of a large sum of money you were not expecting to lose. Maybe it was a sudden diagnosis you were not expecting. Maybe for you, as it was for me this week, right now in the midst of going to the grocery store and seeing everyone wearing masks and you don't have one. I felt that this week. I was walking around. Well, as Philip Johnson's article said, in moments like this, we realize how powerless we are in the face of suffering. I mean, think about this virus for a moment, too. We're now, what, three or four weeks into this thing, and there is still much we don't know. Much scientists don't even know. Medical experts, even. They're changing their opinions and contradicting each other daily. You know, we talked a little bit about this last week. We are just so prone as humans to think, if I just have the right plan, if I just have the right budget, or the right diet, or the right work ethic, or the right parenting style, I can control it all. I can keep it in my hands and keep it under, my, under, uh, under wraps and under my control. I was talking to someone in our congregation this past week, and um, he works in an essential workplace, and he was telling me how the stress of the virus is causing things to come out of his co-workers that he had never seen before. Like he was seeing the true them for the very first time. More anger, more frustration than he'd ever seen. And that is what suffering does. It reveals the true, our true self many times because it reveals to us how little control we have. And then what happens is we, we suffer the event we're going through, but we also suffer that self-realization that, oh, times like this, I'm a lot less powerful than I thought I was and maybe even powerless. So we end up suffering both those things in moments like these. That's probably why he was seeing those things come out of his coworkers. But that's actually one of the ways that God uses it. Because it's good to realize. It's good to have that, that illusion popped, that, that bubble popped, to realize that more is out of our control than we actually know or realize. That's a really, actually a huge blessing when we're made aware of that. I want to quote Paul Tripp again on this again. We quoted him last week, and I'm using some of his materials as a springboard for this series. He's been so helpful to me in my own life in these past few weeks. He talks about the paradox of suffering in this quote when he says this. Here is suffering's paradox. The very things we would do anything to avoid, the very things that confront our understanding of who we are, 
And the very things that cause us the most pain become the very things that usher into our lives the blessing of help, hope, peace, and rest that we all long to experience. What a paradox. Uh, Things we would flee and run from tend to be the very things that God uses to bring into our life hope, peace, and rest. And, And what is that hope, peace, and rest? It's coming to the sovereign God of the universe who's overseeing everything that comes into our life. It's the self-awareness of our delusion and the reality of our limitations and need that grows our God-awareness when that happens, of His sovereign plan and His sufficiency and His care for us. Now, Admittedly, as we embark on this topic today, this is a mystery. It's a mystery of how this plays out. We're going to pack it a bit more, but as I said, we won't get every answer. And when you're in the middle of a trial, it's even harder to grasp and to think about. Because we live most of life with a dark curtain, Jerry Bridges calls it, over what tomorrow will bring, like a dark cloud or a mist. We see through, uh, through haze right now. Or, or asking why certain things happen. We don't know many times. And, and these hard times have a tendency to make us question, wait, 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 who God says it, he is seems to be in direct contradiction to what he's doing right now in my life. You know, why would he let this happen to me? It's a common question I've asked. I know you've asked it too. When times like this happen. One of my kids asked me this week, Why doesn't Jesus keep me from falling every time I fall down? I think implying, uh, I know he's in control. Why would he let this happen? Why would he let me hurt? Why would he let me fall down? And you know, we should have the freedom. You should have the freedom to cry out those questions to God. He, He knows what we're feeling anyways. And the Psalms are full of laments where the author cries out, Where are you? Why have you let this happen? But at the same time, we also need to realize God's secret will, his hidden will, his decreed will, is called secret because it's secret. And it's in those moments when we need, you and I more than ever, to trust that God is who he says he is, even if it looks totally contradictory. And know that even believing In those times, reminding ourselves that God's sovereignty doesn't remove the mystery and sometimes the confusion we have in hard moments when we weigh them against who God says he is and what's happening and what he's allowed to happen in our life. But here's the comfort. He knows what is best and he knows that you and I, we weren't built or made to be able to handle and carry the burden of sovereign knowledge. You might want that. I want that many times. But God made us. We're his creatures. He didn't design your mind, your body, your heart, your soul to be able to encompass and handle sovereign knowledge of the world. Even when you ask for it from him. You and I are finite in mind and heart and body and soul. He is infinite sovereign knowledge. And I would even go so far as to say he's lovingly protecting us by giving us knowledge only on a need-to-know basis. 
and then at the same time, placing us in a context, as we're talking about, that requires us to trust. How much would you need to trust if you knew all the whys? You knew every single purpose, every single reason behind what was happening in your life. He places us in this context because he's made us to, and he knows we can't handle sovereign knowledge, but he also wants to trust because we're so prone to not trust. We do this with our kids, don't we? Or your grandkids, you've done this. How many times have they asked and asked me or your kids have asked you and when you've said no to something or they ask more than likely it's something they want you to explain to them. They ask you a why behind something and, and I say, ah, no, no, no. Well, why, why, why? And sometimes I just have to say to them, do you trust your daddy? Do you trust me? Well, yeah. Do you know that I love you too? Yes, I know that. And I've told them, other, uh, many times, you know, there are just some things you're not ready to know about yet. When you're ready, I will tell you. And are we not God's children too? Doesn't the Father hold the right to keep some things to himself? And could it be that that's actually for our good? Yes, of course. We see it play out with our own children. So in moments like these, in the context we're currently in or all the other contexts of trial and difficulty you're going through now or will go through, trust God and don't demand from him what he is keeping in mystery and keeping hidden. Here's another thought I've had. Just because you and I can't see a reason for him allowing something to happen doesn't mean there isn't one. We, we tend to think that, well, if I can't see a reason, there cannot be one. There must not be one. Well, why would that be? If he is infinite, if he has sovereign knowledge, if he has all power, that wouldn't be the case. So trust him in this current context. Trust him when you're tempted to doubt his character when things look like they're falling apart in our world and in your life. So let's take a look then. If this is our context, and hopefully that's unpacked it for us a little more this morning, does the Bible really give us this truth of God's sovereignty as an answer? What's our comfort? to the context of living in a fallen, sinful world. Let's look at our answer. There is comfort because God is in control. We're going to look quickly at a few passages today to make a case for God's absolute sovereignty. So let's do it, and as we do it, my prayer, my hope is that you find comfort. Four implications. So here's our first one. You see them on your outline there. Our first implication of God's sovereignty is that God's control reaches both ways into eternity. Both ways. What I mean by that is that there has never been a moment in all of history, past and future, and even present, I would say, that has been outside of God, the control of God. His sovereign control reaches to eternity past and will proceed into eternity future. And now here in the present, in the middle of all this coronavirus craziness, what that means is, he still sits on the throne. As we said, it, it may not look like it at times, but his word, I promise you, it affirms it. Our passage we had read today is one of the grandest passages on the sovereignty of God. From Isaiah 46, Isaiah is saying to us. If you've got it open, look. If not, just listen along. He's saying, remember this, call it to mind, and stand firm in it, 
Because I know it's something you forget. Look at verse 12. He says there, we're stubborn in heart to hear this, to believe it, to remember it. He says, remember it. And when you do, you got to stand firm in it. That God is declaring, it's really making known literally the end from the beginning. Past, present, and future, Isaiah is saying, are in his, his hands. And in his counsel, in his will, Isaiah says, he even dictates things not yet done. The future. His sovereign will and purpose will be accomplished, Isaiah is saying, by either his own direct doing or what he permits to take place in this world, in our lives, in the spheres that you move in. I think that's a good definition that most every Christian could agree on when it comes to God's sovereignty. That God's sovereignty is that every single thing that has ever come to pass, he's either caused or allowed to happen if he is God. Now, admittedly, as we've said, that's really hard. We may struggle with what that looks like in our life at times. Or as we said, be confused to what he's doing. But there is not a moment of your life that happens outside of his good purpose for you, Isaiah is saying. And if it's come into your life, it's already passed through his hands. It's like King Nebuchadnezzar said when he was humbled from his place of authority and place of really prideful arrogance and he had that delusion that all things were in my control. It's like what he said when he was humbled and he was reminded he did not have ultimate control. He said in Daniel chapter 4, his dominion, he was speaking of God, his dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing compared to this God. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what in the world have you done, God? He's pretty honest there. It was a moment of absolute humility for him. But you know what happened in Nebuchadnezzar's life? It was the moment of turnaround for him. It was the moment he went from wandering like a beast in the fields with dew on him and eating the grass of the field, as he's described in Daniel, to finally becoming uh, someone who trusts and someone who is in a pr- more proper relationship with the all-sovereign God. Nothing on this earth can stop him, Nebuchadnezzar said. Nothing can derail his plan, his hand, or even question him, what are you thinking, God? I mean, we can ask that, but we're probably not going to get an answer in real time. And as you think about your life, if I think about my life, how good are you at controlling your 401k? I mean, how about just your cell phone? Where is it at? You know, when you misplace it, a car keys or a wallet or... You can't find that file you saved on your computer somewhere. Where did I put that? You know? Don't let suffering cause you to doubt that he is ruling every moment from the past to all of our future. Isaiah says that. Daniel says that. We could go to hundreds of other places in Scripture. And in fact, I'm of the firm belief that once you start seeing the sovereignty of God in Scripture, you'll see it on every single page. Well, that's our first implication. Let's take a look at our second one. It's this. God's control 
while it's past, present, future, all eternity, it's also global and personal. This is what the point we finished with last week, but I wanted to recap it and, and, and dive a little deeper into it. That his control is both global and personal. You may be hearing me today think, you know, talking about this grand you know, theology about God is sovereign, and you might be thinking, well, okay, uh, yeah, I, I see that Isaiah says that and Nebuchadnezzar says that. And he's sovereign maybe in some big transcendent kind of impersonal way, the mighty guy in the sky kind of way. But real day-to-day events, like simple things in my life or tragedy in the world, I mean, look at the world, Jeff. You might be thinking thoughts like this, and I would say it's probably only normal to think those things. You know, there are some of us, as we might be having some of those thoughts, who love new experiences. There are others of us that dread them. But I would say most of us experience some level of anxiety when we try something new or go to a new place. How about visiting a new church for the first time? Maybe you have not done that in a long time. Guess what? We're, we're all going to be doing it in some sense in a few weeks, hopefully when we get back together again. But, you know, whether it was church or starting a new job or going to school at a new school the first day, what happens? You walk into a strange room with strange people there, and they have strange ways or different ways of doing things. Of course, it's natural to have a little anxiety and begin to ask questions. How will this go? How will this turn out? What's going to happen? What are they expecting of me? Where will this lead? And when trials strike us, we're all asking those questions right now with this virus. Where is this going to go? What's going to happen? How will this end? Will it end? I mean, we said the reports change every day. Experts say one thing one day and another thing another day. David in Psalm 139 gives us comfort. He says, wherever you end up, wherever you go in life, whatever strange room God takes you into, God will also be there. And in fact, he was there long before you ever got there. And he owns that place. And he was already there sovereignly ruling it for you and preparing you for it. It's a comforting psalm. It's a really famous psalm. Many of you probably know the words. Here's what he says. You see it on the screen behind me. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're down there. You're there too. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. What a comfort today. Every day. What a truth you and I need to remember. The next trial you will go through, God is already there ahead of you, ruling and reigning and will be there with you. You know, David goes on in this psalm to say uh, in verse 16, I know this is true. God is in every moment of every day. But he says this as well. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. 
Your days are laid out, David is saying. They're plotted. They're formed for you before there was even one of them. When you were an unformed substance, even, David says. What great comfort there is in that, knowing that God is so intimately involved wherever he takes you and with whatever happens in each day of your life. Here's one more for you that I love. I love these verses in Acts 17, verses 26 through 27. It says, God made, this was in, I think, one of uh, Paul's sermons, excuse me. He says, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. So all men and all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. So that, why would he do that? That they would seek God. If perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. In other words, Paul's saying, God is not just far off, transcendent, sovereign. He's very near in his sovereignty. He calls them your appointed times, he's declared. It's the length of your days, that means. Your appointed times. But also your boundaries. What that means is God's declared, determined your address even. What room you'll be in. What place you'll live. Where you'll go. God determines these things in some sense. It means that he's not just transcendent and far off in his control. It means he's also imminent and caring in his control in our lives. I mean, if Jesus will say in Matthew that not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from God's will, was, which was the most insignificant and, and cheap uh, 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 bird to purchase or have, if, if, if that's part of his will, does he not rule over your life, you image bearer? He does. And we have to know this. As Jerry Bridges says again, it's helpful. He says, confidence in this, knowing this, in the sovereignty of God, in all that affects us, is crucial to our trusting him. If there's a single event in all of the universe that can occur outside of God's sovereign control, he makes the claim that we cannot trust him. His love may be infinite, but if his power is limited and his purpose can be thwarted, we cannot trust him. And I would go so far as to say there is not one rogue molecule on this earth that is outside his hand. There's not one speck of of dust or drop of water that's outside his plan. My friends, this this should cause us to, to, to worship, to take a breath, to sink our roots deeper into our trust of this God. If this were not true, could Paul say this? I'm sure of this. Certainty. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. How is there any guarantee that God will accomplish the work he started in you and not fail or lose you or drop the ball if he's not in absolute control? A few quick points of clarification here to some maybe thoughts or objections some have had and some have said, well, if God is in this much control and ordains all things, then human beings are like robots. We're like puppets then. Let me say this. The Bible never anywhere implies or says anything like this. In fact, the Bible is clear that even amongst God's sovereignty and in his ordaining plan, the Bible is clear that you and I make Real choices. You have to hear that. Real choices that have real consequences. And God will actually still hold us accountable to them. The Bible very clearly teaches something. Theologians have called it concurrence, but it basically means two things happening at the same time. 
The Bible clearly teaches, but it is a paradox. I mean, something that on the surface looks like it can't be. But it teaches both. In one sense, you could say that the Bible teaches that all events are caused 100% by God, but also 100% by his creature, as Wayne Grudem puts it. Scripture does not explain how God can do this or how he actually does accomplish it. And it's also very clear, we should say, as another clarification, God never directly does any evil. Any evil. And yet he works through horrible and terrible situations sometimes. I mean, if he wasn't working through evil that befalls you, suffering, the trial, then the very moment you need him most, he's caught off guard, or he's powerless, or he's wringing his hands and saying, I hope she makes it. I hope he makes it. I want to finish this, complete this good work I've started. You're on your own then. Do you need to be reminded today? I know you do. I do. That he rules our globe and is very near at the same time in your life ruling too. He is. The Bible teaches it. Here's our third implication of God's sovereignty. God's control, and this is so great, these final two. If we didn't have these, we'd be in big trouble. God's control is consistent with his character. Here's the great comfort. If he were all-powerful but not loving, then our response would be terror, fear. But he is loving, and he's gracious, and he's merciful, and he never acts in his sovereignty against his character. He's sympathetic to your suffering, even as he's working through it. Think of Jesus back in John 11 as I prayed today. He was weeping, sympathetic, Acknowledging something real was happening in the death of Lazarus, his, Lazarus, his friend. He was sympathetic. And yet in the very same breath, he said to the sisters, this disease will not end in death. It's happened so I can work through it. And so God can be glorified through it. It was both in that moment. His rule never betrays who he is. So when you are confused as to what God is doing in your life or through this virus right now, Maybe your job lost this week or your insecurities. Remember his character and remind yourself that stand firm in it, as Isaiah said. You will never, he will never act against in contradiction with his character. And know that when he works, here's our final one today, it is always for our good. It is always for your good. Admittedly, the hardest part of God's sovereignty is when evil, trouble, Trials befall us. We begin at many times to doubt God. Satan loves more than anything to get us to doubt God's goodness. His control, his providence, his ruling over your life is always for your good. I love the story of Joseph in Genesis, and we'll get to it sometime in uh, coming fall and winter when we go back to our Genesis series. Joseph sold into slavery by his family members. Do you remember? His 11 brothers? They sell him to slavery. They want him gone. They want him dead, maybe even. He ends up in jail for years. Along the way, you know, he's accused of assault by Potiphar's wife, and he's languishing in prison. But through God's providence, he goes from the jail cell 
to being the right-hand man of the king in Egypt. It's, it's an amazing story of God's providence. You know the story, maybe later on, his brothers appear before him. Do you know what he said to them? It's one of the greatest verses in the Bible in Genesis chapter 50. He said to his brothers, you guys, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You meant it, it, the things you did for evil. God meant and purposed those things, ordained those things for good. For the saving of many lives, he said. And God did do that through Joseph. God can use anything in your life for your good, even your suffering. That's what the Lord's Supper shows us as we come to it. That's what the elements that you have at home show us. What is the greatest act of evil that's ever been done? Would it not be the murdering of God's Son as he came to earth to love us and be near to us? But wasn't it in that act where Satan thought he had his greatest victory, that our greatest good came? And you know what the Bible says about that act? It's a long passage, but it's so important today. Hopefully you can see it. It's kind of small back there, but I'll read it and you can listen. When they were released, that's Peter and John from prison, they went to their friends and they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, there's our theme, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our Father, David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage? The people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's Jesus. For truly in this city, they went on and said, They were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. They're culpable. They acted, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. There it is. God is sovereignly working. He worked in his mightiest way to the greatest act of evil that ever took place, the death of his son. But in that death became our greatest good. And if he can work it out in that big way, can he not also in the small things of your life? Or the big trials that are what Paul says, really light momentary afflictions compared to the glory before us that's coming that God is preparing you for. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope.